Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Good morning. It's obviously no secret that we are getting ready to celebrate Christmas here this week. And uh, it is the celebration of one of the greatest events that has ever taken place in human history, and that is the Incarnation. Uh, And the Incarnation is a fancy way of saying God became flesh. God the Son came down and was born as a baby. And all of human history was divided by this event. You know, even if they are trying to do away with that. You know, most of us grew up with A.D. uh, and B.C. And now they're saying, well, no, it's C.E. and B.C.E. C.E. meaning common era and B.C.E. meaning before common era. And what I find so hilarious is they're trying to rename it so that Christ isn't mentioned, but it's still exactly based on the same calendar. It is still all based on when Jesus came. And to me, it says a lot about how the world really is. They do their best to get rid of God, but nothing they can do will ever do that. God is here to stay. So uh, today and next Sunday... We want to take a look at two things about the Incarnation, how it has affected our relationship with God and how it's affected our relationship with each other. And uh, today we're going to look at how the Incarnation has affected our relationship with God. And to start off, I want to read what is probably one of the most well-known Christmas passages. It's the one that you find in all the, the Christmas cards and stuff, and it is John eight thirty four that says this, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. How many of you guys have seen those in Christmas cards? <laughs> you know, it's not a oft-quoted Christmas passage, but I think it should be. That passage, John 8, 34, encapsulates the reason we have Christmas. That's the reason we have Christmas. Romans 3.23 says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So kids, if God says all have sinned, how many have sinned? All. Every single one of us. Every single person born has sinned and fallen short, of the glory of, fallen short of the glory of God, which also means if he who sins is the slave to sin, that means we are all, every single one of us, Slaves to sin, every single one of us. And we were powerless to do anything about our situation. Slaves we were, and slaves we would always be. But then something incredible happened. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, uh, please turn to John chapter 1. And then one more time, if you would, stand with me in honor of the Word of God. 
I want to read, beginning in verse 1 through verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for giving us a way not just to know about you, but to know you. And may we this morning come to know you ever more deeply and love you ever more deeply because of it. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you. May you be seated. I want us to do a a little logic exercise here this morning. Uh, And there's a, a a law of logic that can be stated this way. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Make sense? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Now, what does this have to do with what we're talking about this morning? Well, if you look at verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father. All right, kids, who is the only Son of God the Father? Jesus. That's right, Jesus is the only Son. So verse 14 says, Jesus is the Word. Jesus equals the Word. Then you go back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So if Jesus is the Word, and the Word is God, kids, what does that make Jesus? God. If Jesus is the Word, and the Word is God, then Jesus is God. So this passage is probably one of the greatest passages telling us about the deity of Christ. That means telling us that Jesus is God. In fact, it is such an obvious passage that the Jehovah's Witness Bible actually has to change what it says here because they don't believe Jesus is God. So they had to change what this verse says because they're like, oh no, we have to change what we believe or we can just change what the Bible says. Let's do that. And so that's what they did. And this isn't the only passage they changed because there are other passages that make it clear that Jesus is God in the flesh. This passage also tells us something else. Verse 14, where it says that Jesus is the Word and that He is God's Son, it says that He 
became flesh. He became human. It doesn't say that he came in the appearance of a human, that he just looked like a human, but he wasn't. No, he became a human. He was God in the flesh. Uh, Last week, the passage that Destin uh, took us through, Hebrews 4 and 5, Hebrews 5, 7, telling us this, In the days of his flesh, in the days of his humanity, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So Jesus wasn't just fully God. He was fully man as well. And the idea actually that he wasn't fully human was actually kind of popular during the days when John was writing this. In the book of First John, well, the whole book of First John was written to combat this idea that Jesus wasn't actually human. Because there were people who thought that, well, the flesh is bad, so how can God be flesh? We often think about how the fact that Jesus is God is really big and important, and it is. But just as important is the fact that he was fully human. That's not something we usually talk about as much. We talk about him being God, but we often miss the point that it is just important, just as important that he is fully man. In 1 John 4, 3, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So he doesn't just say that this is a, like a side issue. He says that if you deny that Jesus came in the flesh, if you deny that Jesus was human, you're a heretic. It's blasphemous. It is so far off from the truth. He opens the book of 1 John, verses 1 through 4, saying this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. He opens the book by making it clear, we have seen Jesus, we've heard Jesus, we have touched him. He is truly human. He is truly human. So again, we spend a lot of time talking about the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God, but the humanity of Jesus is an extremely important teaching of the Christian faith as well. Why does it matter, though? Have you ever wondered... Why does it matter if Jesus was human or not? Honestly, I I used to wonder that all the time. I'm like, was it really necessary that he be human? Why couldn't he just do what he did as God? Why was it important that he actually had to be flesh and blood, fully human? If you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, 
verses 47 through 49 say this. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. In this context, when it says he may be redeemed, means he may be bought back out of slavery. After he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relatives from his, relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. So what we read here is basically that if a Jew sells himself into slavery to an outsider, a non-Jew, that Jew can be redeemed, he can be bought back out of slavery in one of two ways. He could either get rich enough to buy himself out of slavery, uh, and slavery back then is not what we think of as slavery nowadays, um, you know, American Civil War era. Back there, slavery was, was different, so they could actually earn money as slaves to buy themselves out of slavery. Or they could have a kinsman, that is a close family member, buy them out of slavery. So if he couldn't redeem himself, there were three things that needed to happen if he had any hope of being redeemed or brought out of slavery. First, it had to be a family member. It couldn't be uh, a neighbor. It couldn't be a close friend. The law said it had to be a member of his family. It had to be a blood relation. Second, that family member had to have a desire to redeem them. And third, they had to have the power to redeem them. So if the uncle had the desire but didn't have the money, that Jew remained a slave. Or if the uncle had the money but didn't have the desire, that Jew remained a slave. So it had to be a family member. They had to have the desire to redeem the slave, and they had to have the ability to redeem the slave. This law that we see here in Leviticus is called the law of the kinsman redeemer. And what this has to do with us is that with our opening passage, that John 8, 34 passage, we saw that each and every one of us is a slave. He who sins is a slave to sin. And for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, slaves to sin. And... Just as with the law of the kinsman, kinsman redeemer, you are absolutely free to buy yourself out of slavery. Let me know how that goes for you. Romans 3, 10 through 18 says this. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. Isn't this a great Christmas message? And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words... 
the prospects of you being good enough to redeem yourself from slavery aren't looking too good for you. This describes us. So it looks like we are in need of a kinsman redeemer. But who would be a suitable kinsman for you? Uh, Your uncle? Your cousin? I mean, the good news is you probably do have a lot of potential kinsman redeemers, right? We all probably have somebody that might love us enough to have a desire to redeem us uh, from slavery. Bad news. They may have the desire, but do they have the ability? Well, your cousin, your brother, your uncle, your nephew, your best friend's cousin's dog's owner's nephew is a slave to sin as well. It doesn't matter who you go to, everyone you go to is in the same predicament. A slave cannot redeem a slave. Enter Jesus. He is God in the flesh. Fully God, fully human. Again, going back to Hebrews that we've been we've been in Hebrews now for several months. Hebrews 2 11 and 14 tells us, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things. Who do you think that passage is talking about? If you say Jesus, you got the right Sunday school answer. Jesus. It is saying that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brother. He is fully human. He partook of the same nature we have, the human uh, body, the human flesh. He is a man completely and totally. But it goes on to say in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So having lived a sinless life as a human, he was not himself a slave to sin. He was a human who was not a slave to sin, which means he didn't have to be redeemed himself. However, if only human, if only human, he still would not have had the power to pay the penalty, the eternal penalty for our sins. That's why it's also important that he is fully God. As a sinless human, he was free to be our Redeemer. And as fully God, he had the power to be our Redeemer. And the fact that he left his glory and his throne behind to become human, to be despised and rejected, it pretty much screams out to us that he also had the desire to be our Redeemer. So in Jesus, as fully human and as fully God, we finally have somebody who is our kinsman and who has the power and the desire to redeem us. So because of the incarnation, we have an able kinsman redeemer. Because of the incarnation, we have an able kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer who is able, able to redeem us from our slavery. 
And it wasn't just because he had to be a kinsman redeemer that his humanity is important. It's also because of how he redeemed us. And how did he redeem us? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And then 1 Peter 3.8 says this, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. These passages and others point to the fact that Jesus died in our place. He took our sins upon himself. In other words, he substituted himself for us so that he could pay the price that we owed. Why did that require him to be fully human, though? Why did he have to be fully human to be our substitute? Right. Kids, how many of you have ever had a substitute teacher? Okay. How many of you guys have ever had a cow as a substitute teacher? I'm speaking literally, not metaphorically or figuratively. <laughs> Probably none of us growing up or otherwise, have ever had a cow as a substitute teacher. Maybe a giraffe, but definitely not a cow. Why not? Well, cows can't talk, for one. They can't teach. Uh, basically, to be your substitute teacher, it had to be somebody who was like your regular teacher. In other words, it had to be somebody who was human, somebody who could communicate. To be a suitable substitute you have to be like what you're substituting for. You know, we get a Walmart pickup. We, you know, we park our van and they bring our groceries out to you. When you place an order with Walmart pickup, if, they don't, if they're out of stock of the item that you ordered, they will substitute it with something uh, like it or better. You know, like if I order 73% lean ground beef and they're out of it, they don't substitute it with kale. I, I don't even think kale is a substitute for any food. I just That's not a suitable substitute for ground beef. Now, they could substitute it with 80% lean, lean ground beef. That's a suitable substitute. It's, it's similar. It's like what it's being substituted for. So, it has to be a suitable substitute in order to be a substitute. So for Jesus to be a suitable substitute, are God and man the same? Go like this. Good answer. God and man are vastly different. God simply can't substitute himself for us because we are so vastly different. And this is why the humanity of Jesus is so important. For Jesus to be a, sub, a suitable substitute for us, he had to be one of us. To be a substitute for humans, he had to be human. Without the incarnation, without him becoming flesh, we have no suitable substitute who can redeem us from slavery, and we are slaves to sin to this day. So because of the incarnation, we have an able kinsman redeemer. 
And because of the incarnation, we have a suitable substitute to pay the penalty for our sin. We have a suitable substitute to pay the penalty for our sin. Let's go back to Hebrews for a moment. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 tells us, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So this was a reference to something that the writer of Hebrews said earlier back in chapter 2. Verses 17 and 18, he said, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, speaking of Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers, us, humans, in every respect. Not just appearing as one, but being one. So that, so that, in other words, this is a cause and effect the, he was made like his brothers so that the next thing could actually take place, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So because of the incarnation... We have an understanding and sympathetic high priest. Because of the incarnation, we have an understanding and sympathetic high priest. A high priest who is able to do what no merely human high priest was ever able to do before, make a propitiation for sin. Every other high priest, they might have had the desire to make a propitiation for the sins of their people, but they did not have the ability So finally, there's a high priest who has the desire and the ability to make a propitiation. You may be wondering, what is a propitiation? What's a pistachio? What is that thing? A propitiation, uh, it's not just a Christian word. It's a word that's common in many religions. A propitiation is a sacrifice that you make to whatever God you serve hoping to turn their anger away and bring their favor upon you. And so here we have a God who is wrathful against sin. He is wrathful against sin. And since all have sinned, his wrath is turned against you. His wrath is turned against you. And you do everything in your power to make a propitiation. You're as good as you can be. You turn over a new leaf in life and go in a different direction. You do everything you can to be good. And God says, your offering is not enough. My wrath against your sin is going to be poured out on your head because you cannot make an offering suitable to appease my wrath. And because you cannot make an offering suitable to appease my wrath, I will send one for you. That is amazing to me. Every pagan false god, their followers served in fear, hoping that their propitiation was enough 
to turn away the wrath of their false god. And we have a God who made it plain that our propitiation would never be enough. And so he sent his own propitiation in the form of his son. There is no God like our God. There is no God like our God. So he provided his own propitiation. He provided a sacrifice in his own son to turn his wrath away from us by pouring that wrath out on his son, pouring that wrath out on Jesus. So because of the incarnation, because Jesus, God the Son, became human, we have one who can truly redeem us out of our slavery to sin as our kinsman redeemer through his sacrifice as a suitable substitute, which was the propitiation he made as our high priest. All of these things made possible through the incarnation. He was able to be our kinsman redeemer by being our substitute, which was his propi- the propitiation he made as our high priest, all because of the incarnation. So the effect of the incarnation on our relationship with God is incredibly deep, incredibly profound. It's more deep and more profound than any sermon could cover in an eternity. Which some of my sermons probably feel like. But to wrap up and summarize the incredible impact of the incarnation. I want to read from one of my favorite passages in scripture. And those who know me well already know that I'm turning to Ephesians 2. Uh, you can rest assured that any time I can, I'm going to work Ephesians 2 into a sermon. Uh, So just bookmark it anytime I preach. You know we're going to go there sooner or later. But Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first seven verses here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In verse 3, when it says that we were children of wrath, it doesn't mean we were angry people. That's what I used to think it meant. Oh, I was a child of wrath. I was angry all the time. It's not what it means. It means that we existed under the wrath of God. We lived our lives under the wrath of God. We had no relationship with God other than objects of his righteous wrath. That was our relationship with God. We were the objects of his righteous wrath. And then verse 4 breaks into our lives like a hammer through the ice. It says, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead. He made us alive in Christ. His love and mercy did not allow it to remain true that our only relationship with him was as objects of his righteous wrath. He sent his son as our redeemer, as our substitute, as our high priest, as our savior to change our eternal destiny and our relationship with him. So I want to bring it full circle back to John chapter 1 where we started, where it says in John 1 verses 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Without the incarnation, we are children of wrath. Without the incarnation, we are children of wrath. But because of the incarnation, we can now be children of God. What more of a profound impact can that ever have on our relationship with God? We went from being objects of his righteous wrath to him calling us his children. Because Jesus divided history and stepped into time as a human. The incarnation was the first event in our road to redemption. And uh, we often think of Christmas as being about the baby Jesus. Jesus didn't come to be a baby. He didn't come to be a baby. He came to be our Savior. That's why he came. That's what we need to keep in mind at Christmas. It's not about baby Jesus. It's about our Savior, Jesus. His road to being our Savior simply had to start in the manger. But the manger should never become the focus. Even when the world does acknowledge Jesus at Christmas, it acknowledges baby Jesus in a manger. And it completely misses why we have baby Jesus in a manger. The manger, without the cross and the empty tomb, it's just a box full of hay that held a very special baby. But with the cross and the empty tomb, the manger is a box full of hay that held the Savior of the world. Christmas isn't simply about a baby. It is about a Savior who changed our relationship with God from being objects of his wrath to being his beloved children. That is the impact of the incarnation. That is why we celebrate it. Let's not celebrate a baby in a manger this Friday. Let's celebrate our Savior coming in the flesh on Friday. That's what it's about. And if you're here this morning, and that passage in John that we read where it says, those who received him, he gave the power or the right to be children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. What that means when it says, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, 
is that it doesn't matter who your parents or grandparents are. It doesn't matter if your dad's a pastor. It doesn't matter if your parents are missionaries. It doesn't matter if your grandparents are the most godly people you've ever known in your entire life. It doesn't make you a Christian. What that makes you is somebody who has had the opportunity to hear the gospel proclaimed. But you're still responsible to respond to that gospel. It says, uh, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, your hard work, what you do in life, how good you can be. You tick all the boxes of being a good Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. It makes you a good person by the world standards, but no closer to God than the person who isn't a good person by the world standards. And it says, nor by the will of man. In other words, it doesn't matter what other people say about you. It doesn't matter what religious institution or religious organization accepts you. Your acceptance by men as a Christian doesn't mean that you're a Christian. It is receiving Christ as your Savior by God. And what that means is this. Not trusting in any good thing you can do, but trusting in Jesus alone and what he did on the cross to get you to heaven. Coming to a point in your life where you realize, I am a sinner and I need a Savior because I cannot do it. I cannot free myself from this slavery to sin. I need Jesus. And then you will truly have something to celebrate this Friday. But if you are not a follower of Christ, if you're not a Christian, then this Friday you really are just celebrating a baby in a manger. Christmas is only Christmas when we receive Christ as our Savior because that's what Christmas is about. If you have more questions about that, about what it means to put your faith in Christ, about what it means to be a follower of Christ, man, come and talk to me. I would love to answer any questions you have. Pastor Matt, Pastor Harold, please come and talk to any of us. We would love to talk more with you about what it means to truly celebrate Christ, not as a baby in a manger, but as our Savior come into the world. Uh, in your bulletin, uh, you'll find some uh, discussion questions there, and I noticed that the slides are not on the screen, and so for those of you at home, you're not able to see those discussion questions. Um, I will get those posted on Facebook uh, as soon as we're done here, but I encourage you, there are discussion questions uh, there in the bulletin uh, for you to talk about with your family, uh, and often we say, you know, talk about them with your kids, but you know what? If it's just you and your wife, talk about them. If it's just you, well, don't talk about them. That'd be kind of weird. But go over them if it's just you and think about them at least. But there are discussion questions there. I encourage you, find some time as a family, uh, as a couple, find some time this week or today, uh, preferably, to go over those, to really meditate on what it means and what it means to your relationship with God that Jesus became flesh. Let's pray. Father, I come before you and thank you so much that we get to celebrate a Savior on Friday. Not just a miraculous happening of God becoming flesh, but the miraculous happening of redeeming slaves from sin. 
the miraculous happening of taking objects of your wrath and turning them into your children. What an incredible thing, Lord. Father, I pray that you will find us as a people who are worshiping you this coming Friday. Lord, let us not make Christmas all about family time. Family time is a great thing, Father, but Christmas is about our Savior. Let us put the focus where it needs to be, where it deserves to be, on an incredible Savior who is an incredible kinsman redeemer, an incredible substitute, and our awesome high priest. Father, you, may you be glorified through how we celebrate Christmas this week and how we live our lives throughout the year. To you alone be the glory. To your name we pray. Amen.